The following is a message by Dr. Peter Jones from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. Chapter 1, verse 1 through 15. Please give attention to the public reading of God's inspired word. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey and he preached, saying, After me comes He who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water... Immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and the voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Let us pray. Oh Lord God, we come to you as the one who is the inspirer of this amazing word and we Pray that by the Holy Spirit you will open our eyes to see its meaning and teaching for us this day. May we lift up this wonderful Savior about whom this text is speaking. May he be evident and glorified. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. I've entitled my remarks, The First Five Minutes of Mark. I do that because uh, while I'm not a great movie buff, I'm very insistent on seeing the introduction to a movie. If I miss the movie, I really would rather go out and come back, though of course when you've paid your money, you can't do that. One of my favorite movies of all time is Man for All Seasons. It's a wonderful study of human motivation and character. But the movie begins with the sumptuous scenes, for me at least, of uh, England in uh, various seasons of the year, the winter, the spring, the summer, and autumn. 
And in those scenes, you get a sense of the drama that's about to unfold. Well, that's what I believe this prologue does, as Mark writes it. I suppose I should try to prove to you that there really is a prologue, verses 1 through 15. It seems to me that uh, Mark is divided into two basic sections. Uh, chapter 1, verse uh, 16 through 830. That's the first section of Mark that has to do with the kingdom drawing near and asking the question, who is Jesus? And then there's a second part of Mark which begins in 831 and goes all the way to the end where the question is not who is Jesus but what kind of Christ will Jesus be? And in terms of the kingdom, it's not the coming or the approach of the kingdom but now it's the affirmation that the kingdom will come in power. So there are sort of two comings of the kingdom. I would suggest to you then that if we have those two basic blocks, then 1 through 15 of chapter 1 functions as a prologue. Now, how does it work? What is the literary performance of this prologue? I would suggest to you that it's broken down into three sections. The beginning, verses 1 through 3, the middle part, which would be 4 through 13, which is the whole story of uh, John the Baptist and Jesus and so on. And then the final section, of course, is Jesus coming into Galilee proclaiming the gospel. So first of all, the beginning, uh, verses 1 through 3, where is the beginning of this gospel? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, Mark doesn't begin with birth narratives. I believe that he actually begins with citations from the Old Testament as the beginning. Some of you may be interested to know that kathos gegraptai, as it is written, never begins a new thought, but always works to link what proceeds to the following. So we're not beginning a new thought when Mark says, as it is written. It's part of what he just said, the beginning. And I would suggest to you then that the beginning is actually a citation of Old Testament scriptures. <laughs> That's where Mark wants to begin his gospel. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who shall prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. That catena of citations from the Old Testament includes include a promise to Israel to bring them safely through the wilderness, Exodus 23:20, 20, and the prophecy of a new exodus to be led by the Lord's Messiah in Malachi and Isaiah. So Mark here is doing what Paul programmatically said he did, speaking of the gospel which is promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Mark doesn't cite many Old Testament texts in the gospel proper, but he's making a statement of programmatic import in this prologue. So the scriptures are absolutely essential to the beginning, but I want you to see this, that the, 
the literary performance of the prologue, I believe, is actually to show the fulfillment of those prophetic texts in the prologue. And that the actual fulfillment of those texts is a sine qua known for anything else that Mark can say about the life of Jesus. You see my point. Stick with the prologue and what it's doing relative to those prophecies. I would argue then that verses 4 through 13 demonstrate in the actual facts of the uh, events recounted the fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies. When you analyze these prophecies, there are four personages evoked. God, the inspirer of the prophecies, John the messenger, the repentant Jews, and then Jesus, the one uh, before whom John was sent. We see God here at work in that lovely little adverb, euthus, straightway, which occurs actually some 42 times in Mark, uh, compare only 12 times in the rest of the New Testament. Mark loves this little word. And, and I believe it's not simply to em- emphasize haste, but the notion of straightway, that there is, a, there is a plan, you see. God is working out events straightway in his wonderful plan of salvation. There is the messenger, John the Baptist, clearly functions here as a fulfillment of those prophecies. Uh, and John is aware of this. Do you think uh, John woke up one morning and said to himself, I think I'll wear a camel's hair ensemble today. That might start a fashion trend. No, he dressed that way because according to Scripture, the mantle of Isaiah, the covenant messenger, fell upon him, and he wore typical prophet's clothing and ate typical prophet's food. John knew that he was a fulfillment of prophecy. Now, the repentant Jews are also a part of that. They come as Old Testament believers... And John exhorts them to prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. That's in the plural. Etoimasate and poiete. It's a plural exhortation to my people Jerusalem. So they're part of this fulfillment. And finally, there's Jesus. He is the one who is mysteriously behind uh, the phrase, I will send my messenger John before your face. Who is this singular your face who will prepare your way? Jesus then is within these prophecies, but he appears in the text both as Lord and Son. There's an ambiguity here then. And it's in that ambiguity that Jesus can also fulfill these prophecies. As the Lord, of course, he is so worth, so great that John is unworthy even to perform the most menial services in his presence. And it is this Lord uh, in whom occurs the revelation of Yahweh's glory. I love that text from Isaiah 59. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm worked salvation for him. 
and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. What a wonderful prophecy of God's intervention in the Son as the divine Son of God. But of course, Jesus is also fulfilling these prophecies as the representative son, the true Israel. Israel, who was first called son, of course, as you know, in Exodus 4.22. And in that, Jesus, of course, is also the last Adam. So those are the personages in the narrative that will fulfill the prophecies. And, of course, the whole of this prologue's performance comes down finally to the last two verses in the fulfillment of the public ministry of Jesus. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel and saying the time is fulfilled. I want to look with you, though, at the epicenter of this prologue. The epicenter of the prologue, it seems to me, is verse 13, which... uh, in uh, a few lines, actually recounts the victory of Jesus over Satan as the preparation of the way of the Lord in fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. To do that, I'd like to talk first of all about the importance of the wilderness. The fulfillment of these texts is generally or tends to be seen only in the ministry of John the Baptist. He's the one who fulfills these prophecies because he is the one who prepares the way of the Lord. But there's a second quotation that we noted, which refers not to John, but to his message, which is not directed to John, but to others, actually to the Jews. John is merely a voice crying to others. So what is the message that John must deliver? Here we come to one of the most important commas in the Bible, a Bible that has no commas. Uh, Do we uh, punctuate this phrase this way, a voice crying in the wilderness, comma, prepare the way of the Lord, or do we punctuate it A voice crying, comma, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Now, you know when you say that, you tend to put the comma after the wilderness. Well, I have wrestled with this, and I I think that the Old Testament comes to our aid since there are no commas. The Old Testament unambiguously (laughs) demands that it be taken only one way, that actually The message is to prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. This is what you find in the Old Testament. A voice of one calling in the desert, Midbar, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a rabbah, a highway for our God. You see that Hebrew parallelism which demands that wilderness be part of the message, not simply the place where the messenger is speaking. And here, of course, if this is the message, here is where the plural exhortation becomes a singular when it's addressed to Jesus, who is the true Israelite. 
And so Jesus receives this exhortation from John for himself as the one who finally will respond to that exhortation and prepare the way of the Lord. How does he do it? The drawing near of the kingdom of God in verses 14 and 15 doesn't come just like that. It comes because somebody did something. It comes first because scripture predicted it, because Jesus was fulfilled by the spirit, because God anointed him. But it comes particularly because of Jesus' private struggle and defeat of Satan. It was here you remember that Satan offered him all the kingdoms of the world, which clearly is assumed when Jesus later says, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Of course, on the larger campus, uh, on the larger canvas, Jesus' time in the wilderness is recapitulating the 40 years of Israel in the desert. But it's also a recapitulation of the original temptation uh, in the garden, but now with wild animals in a fallen situation. And so we have in the wilderness this epic face-off between the interloper, prince of this world, who believes he has the right to all the kingdoms of the world, and the prince and Jesus, who is the Lord, the true Lord of his creation. The cosmic import of the second Adam's unparalleled victory over temptation and evil is that which makes the paths straight. For the coming of the remission of sins, as God predicts it in Mark 1, 4. The complete silencing of Satan is an achievement never before realized in human history. It is the first and only perfect keeping of the covenant of works. Because of this, it is a victory that allows for the first time in human history the declaration which Jesus gives. First thing he says the eternal final kingdom of God of a transformed heaven and earth has in the person of Jesus already drawn near. Well, what are the implications of this? Obviously, the implications are that Jesus can come and begin his ministry. Reading on and between the lines, As it leads into the narrative proper, one can see Jesus, the truly unsung hero, perhaps emaciated from 40 days of not eating and a mortal combat with the devil, beginning his earthly ministry, though buoyed by hearing in his ear, doubtless, the father whispering, go out in joy, be led forth in peace. And though on that day no one seemed to know it, though the stones that almost got illegally turned into bread probably were crying out if only somebody could hear it. And for those who have ears to hear, they could probably hear the mountains and the hills bursting forth into song as all the trees of the field clapped their hands. For on that day, when Jesus came into Galilee, the promise of God to his servant was fulfilled. In the time of my favor, 
I will answer you, and in the day of salvation, I will help you. And in that moment, the future of creation was assured. No wonder the mountains and the hills were singing. This is where the gospel proper starts. As Stonehouse said, it is here, the full appearance of the gospel, the gospel proper. And it's in the power of that victory, you see, that Jesus can now come and make that earth-shaking statement that he can face evil. When those spirits say, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. It's because Jesus had already bound the strong man in that struggle in the desert. I'm at my conclusion. A good prologue hints at the work's conclusion. In A Man for All Seasons, the changing seasons hint at the steadfastness of Thomas More, especially the scene of an English wintertime evoking Thomas More's steadfastness at the time of his death. Emaciated and exhausted from months of unlawful prison, his mind still as sharp as a tack, Moore sits facing Parliament, arguing brilliantly for his innocence and his life. At that moment, a man walks past Moore, resplendent in the regalia of the Attorney General of the Duchy of Wales. An obvious reward for his lies that had just sealed Moore's fate. It was Richard Rich who as a young man years before had pled with Moore to find him a place at court. But Moore, who knew the kid, told him to remain as a teacher where he would be a successful human being. Richard Rich would have nothing to do with that and found his way into court and his success by telling lies about Moore that sealed his fate. As he walks by, though, Thomas More says, Richard, citing Mark 8.36, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world? But Wales. There are only two people laughing at that. Uh, Well, Howell isn't laughing. I don't know why. Rich had given into temptation, lost his soul, and got Wales. Jesus, too, knows he is going to his death. But like more and unlike rich, he is not going to sell his soul for any of the kingdoms of the world, and certainly not Wales. At the beginning of the gospel, well, at the beginning of the end of the gospel, Mark 8.31, Jesus predicts, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. At this moment, Jesus faces a new temptation. It comes in the words of Peter, No, Lord. And Jesus sees it and rejects that and says, Get thee behind me. And so you have a a repeat, if you like, of the prologue, the heavenly voice through Peter, the temptation. And it's because of what Jesus was able to achieve in the prologue that he is strengthened now to face that temptation as he really goes to the cross. And he, at that moment, predicts 
a new coming of the kingdom, not only that the kingdom is drawn near, but that the kingdom will come in power. This is a, a wonderful example for us to follow. Jesus lived biblical eschatology, inchoate eschatology, from the affirmation at the baptism, which is a, an already statement, to lo- looking forward to resurrection. In the middle, he is faithful. That is our eschatology as well. And it's because of the faithfulness of Jesus that we can live in between the already and the not yet. As Calvin said of Jesus, he accomplished his salvific worth work by the whole course of his obedience. Thank God, said Machen at the time of his death, for the active obedience of Christ. And you remember the hymn we always sing here, Machen's favorite hymn, which is clearly based on Mark 836, 836, where the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let me just end with an exhortation to you all. In this fallen world, with the reality of our own sin, even the possibility looming of real persecution, let me ask you this. Is your mind on the things of God rather than the things of man? Though on the outside you may look like Peter, very spiritual, do you have a whole soul commitment to following Christ, whatever the cost? If not, denounce it. Call it satanic. Do not live in anything like Richard Rich's hell on earth. No, love truth rather than life and life's pleasures. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Worship Christ as your glorious Lord and Savior, and learn to imitate him with passion, thanksgiving, and abandon. And look forward to that day when your champion and Savior will be finally recognized, not just by stones and trees and mountains and simple believers like us, but by every tongue from all the kingdoms of the world over which He now reigns as just spoils of victory, a right given to him, not now by illegitimate, devilish, and scandalous make-believe, but by a solemn act of divine justice from the hand of God, Father, creator of heaven and earth. To this great battle-scarred but victorious champion, our Savior Christ, be all glory, both now and and forevermore. Amen. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.